You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, as the now tantalising US presidential race enters its final lap with only days to go, foreign affairs correspondent Rune McCormack reports from Florida on the narrowing polls. And in Moscow, Isabel Gorst on how the Trump candidacy is playing there. Meanwhile, Ireland has been involved in a significant UN initiative to get all nuclear weapons banned. I talked to Ben Tonra, a UCD specialist in Irish and European foreign policy, about the prospects for such a move and Ireland's distinctive historic support for non-proliferation. The bombshell dropped by FBI Director James Comey on the US election, that is the news that a new cache of Clinton emails are going to be examined, has reopened the election that many saw as a foregone conclusion. Rune McCormack is there in Tampa in Florida. Is there any evidence yet that the polls are turning against Clinton? Well, there is evidence that polls, that the the gap between Clinton and uh, Trump is narrowing. Um, but the question is whether that was occurring anyway or whether that's due to um, the revelation last Friday by the, the FBI director, James Comey, that he's looking into um, some some new emails or potentially new emails um, that were found on Anthony Weiner's um, uh, computer. Um, some posters have suggested that there is a tightening, but that it was occurring in the days leading up to Friday in any case, um, and that it was um, the sort of, of, of tightening that you would see in the closing stages uh, of an election campaign. Um, but either way, there is evidence that Donald Trump has made up a percentage point or two um, in, in the polls that were carried out last week. We're starting to see the polls that were done in the field since Friday, um, and, and they show much the same thing. If you look at the Real Clear Politics polling average, which aggregates um, a lot of polls, um, Clinton's on 48, Trump is on 45. Um, so that's narrower than some of the margins you would have seen um, at, at different points over the last two weeks. But what, what the revelations by James Comey have also done is um, they have shifted the the, the the, the, the sense of this, this unstoppable momentum that Hillary Clinton had, had gained in the last um, two or three weeks, particularly after the, the third debate in Las Vegas, which she was deemed to have won very comfortably. Um, and what it's done is it has shifted the attention again onto Hillary Clinton and her conduct um, and her operation, whereas Clinton always does well when the attention is on Trump, when when he's the subject of discussion, when people are talking about things that he has said. Um, but in the last few days since Friday, Trump has has gained the initiative and has focused very very much on this, and and in a way that benefits him and, and certainly doesn't benefit Hillary Clinton. And what we probably see is not so much an effect on the percentages, but on the turnout. Isn't that right? That that more reluctant. Republicans who might have been saying, I really can't stomach the thought of voting for Trump, but who are going to stay at home might actually be inclined to come out. I think you're right. That can have two uh, results that, 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 um, that concern the Clinton camp. One is obviously that these reluctant Trump voters, these lukewarm Trump voters on the Republican side, will come out and, and, and narrow the gap 
between uh, between Clinton and Trump in some important battleground states. Um, so you know, you're know, you thinking of places like Florida, where I am now, where some polls show a dead heat. Um, I'm thinking of places like Ohio, uh, uh, Iowa. Um, both states, those latter two states, are states where Trump is actually in the lead. Um, the other concern is that it will... Uh, it, it will make it much more difficult for the Democrats to win the um, the extra Senate seats um, that, that 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 the party needs if it's to take control of of that chamber, um, and that has had very much been the focus of the Clinton campaign in the week leading up to last Friday. Um, Clinton had been putting extra money into states where the Democrats feel they have a very good chance in in Senate races, places like Arizona and Nevada, for example. Um, and there's a sense that just it makes it makes it much more difficult um, um, to to ensure that Democrats are going to take control of the Senate when people go to the polls next Tuesday. Indeed, there had been talk, maybe rash talk earlier, that uh, the, the the Democrats might even take control of the House of Representatives, which would mean a swing of of something like. 30 seats and it was going to require according to some political scientists I've seen a a good eight point margin between uh, Clinton and and, uh, Trump that seems to be completely off the cards now it does for now. Um, most analysts would would feel that while the Democrats still have a chance of taking the Senate, and you know that's not a foregone conclusion, but they have a good chance of taking the Senate, that it would be a big ask for them to take the House. Um, as you say, as you say, that Hillary Clinton would need a, a huge margin, and eight points is very much at the outer end of the opinion polls when she was doing particularly well, say, two weeks ago. Um, so it certainly is a tall order. That said, the Clinton campaign is still putting money into places where they feel they have a good chance. I mentioned Nevada and, and Arizona. Um, they're putting money in there partly because they feel Hillary Clinton has, has a chance, but also because they feel they can get their candidates for the Senate over the line. An interesting um, point about the, the, the last couple of days is that Donald Trump has, has shifted slightly in uh, in terms of the places he's going, um, the, 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 the messages he's pressing. In the last few days, um, he's announced that he's going to New Mexico, he's going to Michigan, he's going to Wisconsin. These are states where... Um, they're, I suppose they were traditional battlegrounds, but they've been very much in the, Democrat, in the Democratic column for a number of years, more than 20 years in, in, in some cases. But he's decided to go to these places, he says, because um, his campaign has internal polling showing that the, the race is, is quite close. Um, the other interpretation is that he feels that his route to the 270 electoral votes he needs to win, um, that his route, his other routes, his you know classic routes that he's been uh, working on over the last couple of weeks and months, are closing, and so that's looking very difficult for him to win places like um, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and so that he's had to go elsewhere um, on the electoral map. Um, to try to steal states that have looked very comfortably democratic for quite some time. They are states that have big um, constituencies of people who don't have college degrees, white working class um, men, people who tend to vote in very large numbers for Donald Trump in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania. You know, you do have constituencies like that in Michigan, Wisconsin, but it does look very much, unless his polling is his, his private polling is telling him that it's a, a dead heat, which no other polling seems to suggest. Um, it does 
point to perhaps a shift in the in the Trump thinking and a sense that their options are narrowing as we approach the final week of the campaign. They have to start looking elsewhere for votes. Well, one of the important places, of course, is, is Florida, where, where you are at the moment, in, in, uh, in Tampa, uh, where, as you say, it's, it's completely neck and neck. Florida is somewhere he has to win if, he, if he's going to get the 270. What is your feeling about the thing on the ground? I gather you've been visiting, for example, old, old people's homes. I have. Um, in, in broad terms, uh, you know, Florida is a very important state. It has 29 uh, electoral votes. It's the biggest uh, swing state by far. It's, it's a diverse um, and, and very large state. In, in general terms, um, the south of the state, which is um, more urban, more ethnically diverse, leans towards the Democrats, and the north of the state um, more closely resembles the deep south in its politics. It's, it's, it's more rural, it's more conservative, and it, it, it leans very heavily Republican. And the, the, the part of the state that's very hard fought is the middle, what's called the I-4 corridor, the Interstate 4 corridor, which runs from Tampa to uh, Orlando in the middle of the state. And, and that's where um, these two you know, two, two parts of the state meet, and it's where most of the campaigning has been taking place. So Hillary Clinton is in Tampa today. Bill Clinton is in the Tampa region today. Joe Biden will be here later in the week. Um, President Obama was here last Friday. Um, so, you know, all the most most prominent advocates on Hillary Clinton's side are here, have been here in the, the last couple of days or are coming. You've also had Mike Pence. Donald Trump is coming back. Um, I was in, in a community called The Villages, which is about an hour northwest of Orlando uh, yesterday, and uh, it's a very Republican place. Um, there are about 100,000 people living there, all of whom have moved there from elsewhere in the U.S. Uh, you have a lot of Army veterans. Um, you have uh, you know, a very strong local Republican organization, um, and it's a place where every Republican candidate for the last 15 or 20 years has, has campaigned. Um, and you, you get some of the same impressions you, you get everywhere in the U.S., which is, when you talk to voters, which is that, you know, a lot of Republican voters um, are not all that enthusiastic about Donald Trump as an individual, um, but, feel, you know, that, that they're not, maybe not comfortable with the way he's conducted his campaign, the things he said about various uh, groups in society, but they're convinced that Hillary Clinton would be worse. So when you speak to people, um, you get a very strong sense that they're voting against Clinton as much as for Trump. Um, similarly, on the Democratic side, you know, Democrats are a few and far between in a place like the villages. But again, when you speak to people, um, you know, there's not a, a, a deep affection for Hillary Clinton, and people have reservations about her and her record, but feel that um, in that case, that uh, Trump is is dangerous and, and and inexperienced and unqualified to be president, and that's very much driving their vote uh, more than anything else. Thank you very much, Ruan. All to play for yet. You're listening to the Irish Times. Now to Moscow. Russia, it seems, has almost become a bit player in this election campaign, contributing to Trump's campaign by hacking Democratic phones. Unusually, Russia has also been a topic of debate in the contest. Innumerable references. Clinton has made much of Trump and his campaign's admiration for Putin. But how has the election been reported and covered in Russia? Isabel, is the admiration mutual? And does Russia view the election of President Trump as in its interests? Putin said last week that he would accept any candidate and he would work with any leader of the of the US and praise the US as a great power. 
But having said that, I think Trump is probably a better option for Russia than Clinton, because Clinton is quite openly hostile to Russia now. Of course, the accusations that the Russians hacked the democratic account or, or helped, helped do that, I mean, Russia hasn't admitted to that and it is yet to be proven. But the very fact that those accusations are out there make it really impossible for Clinton to take a conciliatory approach to Russia or to Putin if she should become president. And have you a sense that ordinary Russian people are following this election closely? I, I get a sense that uh, some people say that Trump likes Russia and, and that, that is a big plus. Of course, the fact that Trump, Trump has openly said positive things about Putin and advocated a less adversarial approach to Russian politicians generally is a huge plus for Russia. And it's really, it's not just that obviously it's nice that he's being nice about them, but that it's unprecedented really in an American election that you have any candidate being very friendly towards Russia. It's not really usually a vote winner in America to do that. It's a first and it's it's something which Russian politicians have no choice but to exploit that. It's a big plus. But is that a unanimous view or is it the Russian media? Does it reflect different perspectives on Trump? On the whole, the Russian media just reports what Trump says and reports which helps in a way without qualifying. So they use Trump to discredit Clinton. There's quite a lot of commentary in Russian media, including traditionally pro-Kremlin media, saying that Trump is extraordinary as a candidate and, and somewhat they hint that he's grotesque and they can't really imagine somebody like that being voted for as president. But at the same time, they express pleasure that a candidate that's pro-Russia is actually standing up there and has in, has in, is in with the chance to win, to become the leader of the world's most powerful country. Now, over the weekend, Senator Harry Reid added fuel to the flames by suggesting that James Comey, the FBI director, um, has been sitting on evidence of close collusion between the Trump campaign and Moscow. How do such claims get reported in, in Russia, and has there been any official response? These claims have been reported. There's not an attempt to cover up that information. It would be impossible to do so with internet news available here. But usually they're reported saying, well, there's not strong evidence yet, and there have been other ugly claims against Russia during this campaign, and there's, they're not supported yet by evidence. This, they're sort of reported, but in a fairly light way. It's just, it's just another noise in what has been a very scandalous election campaign. It's reported like that. I think, it's, I think the reporting of the American election, you can see, it's rather like you report a show, which is quite fun to watch. Largely because in Russia, I think the handling, and not just in Russia, if we're honest, the handling of the American campaign and what's come out has just discredited America. And I think for Russia, which feels very hurt by the criticism it faces from America constantly, is pleased to see its opponent sort of under the stick a bit. Squirming. The, the recent relationship, of course, has been poor. It's a sort of uh, Cold War rhetoric uh, has re-emerged very much over issues like Aleppo, uh, over the issue of Crimea. And you, you've seen on the other side Trump praising Putin over the annexation of Crimea uh, and over the, uh, his suggestion that, that he would reduce American commitments to uh, NATO allies on, on the front line against Russia. That would be music to uh, Mr Putin's ears. Of course, it's, 
It's completely music to Putin's ears. And also Trump's claim that elections are rigged in America and that if he doesn't win, it won't be fair. It's also great for Putin, who has faced criticism for holding rigged elections himself and presiding over a corrupt political system. The whole thing has played very well for Mr. Putin. And he, he is a very opportunistic politician, clever politician. He's making full use of it. And of course, we'll have to deal with whoever is elected. Thank you very much, Isabel. Late uh, last Thursday night at the UN, a motion was proposed by Ireland and five other countries to call a diplomatic conference to negotiate a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons with a view to their total elimination. It was approved by 123 states voting in favour, 38 against, with 16 abstentions. The United States, the UK, Russia, Israel and France were among the countries voting against the measure. Professor Ben Tonra is Jean Monnet Professor of European Foreign, Security and Defence Policy and Associate Professor of International Relations at UCD. Ben, this resolution and the alliance that supported it have a history. They do. And nuclear non-proliferation disarmament is really baked into the DNA of our own Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, the New Agenda Coalition, of which this is sort of the, the output from, has been campaigning for some time to build in and to, and to address what they see as the humanitarian impact of the potential for nuclear war. They've run a series of conferences over the last number of years, and this has all been a run-up to this effort to, in principle, prohibit the use of nuclear weapons. Not necessarily with any practical application in terms of they don't expect the US and the Russians to sign up to this, but as part of their overall effort to delegitimize the use and the possession of nuclear weapons. And the New Agenda Coalition consists of Ireland, Austria, Brazil, Mexico, Nigeria and South Africa. That's right. And they were supported by some 60 other uh, sponsoring uh, sponsoring states. So it had very substantial support in the, in the General Assembly. Very broad and very wide. Um, and not necessarily support, but at least abstentions from some interesting quarters. The Chinese, the uh, Pakistan and India all abstained on the particular resolution, which opens some kind of windows for possibility. But it has been, as I say, part of a long... A campaign on the part of these countries to really address the issue of nuclear non-proliferation outside the framework of the Treaty on Nuclear Non-Proliferation of the NPT. The NPT is sort of our keystone international treaty to, uh, to, to address nuclear proliferation issues, but it's seen as been dead in the water for these last 5, 10, 15 years. Now, there was no major progress being made. So this is sort of a, a way of getting around that roadblock through a new mechanism. Now, of course... Um Countries like the the US, France, and Britain, Britain opposed. And but interestingly, um, a country like uh, Australia, which has a long tradition of supporting um, or opposing nuclear weapons and, and and both their use and their ownership, uh, it was opposed to the resolution. Uh, why was that? Basically, it's a fundamental division on strategy. Because what the Australians are saying is you have to pursue this brick-by-brick brick strategy within the existing legal framework of the non-proliferation treaty. The Irish, the New Zealanders and others are saying, listen, we've been trying that for these last 10, 15 years. We're not getting anywhere. Agreements that we've already agreed have not been fully signed and, and owned up to. So therefore, we're going to take another mechanism. The Australian criticism, of course, is that this is all about posturing politics, that this will have no material impact. It won't engage those powers that possess nuclear weapons. And so in a sense, it's, it, it's a wasted effort that should be better directed into where the real meat and drink of these negotiations can be, which, as I say, is the NPT. And but that and that involves persuading uh, the nuclear states exactly. to honour their obligation exactly. under the NPT 
to reduce their own their own stock exactly because the entire agenda of the NBT is is in the possession of the nuclear powers so therefore they will only go so fast as they will all go together they're not moving in any particular direction at any particular speed and therefore this frustration has built up so that countries like Ireland this new agenda coalition have taken a different tack to try and see to try to declare that nuclear weapons are themselves weapons of mass destruction and their humanitarian impact necessitates making them illegal in principle and putting the nuclear power states in the in the dock in the dock and making them appear as if they're they're in breach of international exactly. law they want to delegitimize nuclear weapons in the same way we've delegitimized the use of landmines the way we've delegitimized the use of chemical weapons biological weapons that put nuclear weapons in that kind of category now in terms of European support, obviously the, the Austrians were part of, of, of the motion. But the European support was a little thin. And one of the countries that I, I understand abstained was Finland, That's right. which has traditionally been very close to Ireland in terms of its, our, our position on, on neutrality. It, it, it's a neutral too. What's the logic of the Finns? Are they, and they're moving closer to NATO now too. Yeah, I mean, with, with what Russia is doing in, in the Ukraine and elsewhere and some of the more outlandish statements the Russians have made about the Baltic states, even about Finnish sovereignty, you know, there has been a move both by Sweden and Finland to bolster their own bilateral defence cooperation and also to close uh, to make closer their relationships with NATO. And I think there was a lot of pressure on the part of, of, of the United States in particular to say, well, listen, if you want a closer relationship with NATO, if you want to come into the, the orbit of the NATO alliance, which is, which is a nuclear alliance, therefore you're, you may have to temper some of your more declaratory statements on nuclear non-proliferation. But interesting, too, you had a NATO member abstaining. The Dutch abstained on this particular motion, and that was a result of a ferocious amount of, di- of, of, uh, of domestic political opinion and parliamentary opinion in favour of voting uh, for the Irish and, and other resolution, but counter- counterweighted by, by US determination that NATO allies would not vote in favour of the resolution. Now, in terms of, of where we stand at the moment, the, the, the legality of nuclear, of nuclear weapons and their use has not really been tested. There was a, an important ruling in '96, but we've seen the courts internationally setting limits to the use, but not prohibiting their use. Exactly. And, and this is part of that strategy, because again, I come back to the point that the strategy is to delegitimize the possession and use of nuclear weapons. And it, through international humanitarian law, that's the tact that's been taken. So as I say, you've had these conferences looking specifically at the humanitarian impact of the potential of nuclear warfare, delegitimizing the use of nuclear weapons because of their adverse humanitarian impact, and building or trying to build that into or bake that into international legal precedents on the use of force. Ireland has long been associated with the nuclear non-proliferation treaty uh, and seen as somehow an important expression of what has been called active neutrality. Fifty years later, however, 17,000 nuclear weapons remain in existence. Um, Surprisingly, however, I I think the government here didn't make more of of its support for this resolution and didn't wave the flag more uh, domestically, uh, where it has come under criticism from uh, pro-neutrality groups for Shannon, for example, and other acts of non-neutrality. Well, as you say, I mean, you know, being anti-nuclear and having this agenda is, is, is really part of Irish foreign policy stretching all the way back to the, to, to the 1950s and Frank Aiken and the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty itself. And, and our, the Irish minister was the first to sign that treaty in recognition of Ireland's role. So it is to a degree surprising that the, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade hasn't made more of this particular incident. But you might also say that, you know, 
their bread and butter, their budgetary uh, uh, bread and butter, if you like, comes from consular stuff, comes on, comes from trade. And so there's been quite a refocus of the department towards really practical expressions of Irish foreign policy and, and sovereignty in terms of promoting Ireland abroad in very tangible economic and trade terms. So perhaps this is part of the, of the psyche of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, but they don't see it as a particular vote winner either for the minister or a budgetary winner for the department as a whole. A sort of new realism in, in foreign policy, which is less to do with principles are more to do with pragmatic interest. I think so. And and but remember that for diplomats this is this is catnip. For diplomats, this is why they want to become diplomats. They want to be working on the world stage on these really big issues. But those aren't the things that butter the parsnips as far as a vote in the doll goes. That stuff is all comes down to the consular mission of the department and now the trade promotion mission of the department. Turning perhaps to the to the the big picture and uh, down the road, the reality is, of course, that this is this is about striking a moral uh, position more than actually affecting change, and particularly in the context of the UN and its structures, that they're still dominated. It's still dominated by the 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 nuclear powers on the, on the Security Council. They have they have a veto on on this thing, and they will strangle this process. This also raises, though, the issue of the. Uh, structure of the Security Council and our concerns that that doesn't reflect, uh, if you like, it doesn't reflect in any form democratic decision making on a a global level. Is, Is this is this going to increase pressure to to change? the, the um, structure of and membership of the, of the Security Council? Well, I, I take issue slightly with the premise of the question in as much as I don't see this as purely posture politics. I mean, there is, there's a substantive and, and well-thought-out strategy behind it, which, as I say, is reflective of earlier successful strategies on landmines, on chemical weapons, and on biological weapons. So I think there's a genuine strategy there to make a difference, although as you're, you're right entirely to say that in the short run, this conference that kicks off in early 2017 is not going to ban the bomb within the space of six months or probably even six or even 16 years. But it is part of that strategy. I think your bigger question, though, is, is, is absolutely on the mark. And that is to say that it, it is reflective of the fact that if they have this conference, nobody has to show up. The U.S. doesn't have to show up. The Russians don't have to show up. The Chinese don't have to show up. They don't have to listen to the will of the U.N. General Assembly's first committee in this matter in the same way that they don't have to listen to the will of the UN and the international community on the Security Council. But there you have your question of democracy, and you have to ask yourself, well, you know, what kind of democracy are you looking for? It's not, and we know that the international uh, arena is not run on the basis of one country, one vote. Power matters. And the, and the advantage of the UN, in comparison, let's say, to the League of Nations in the 1920s and 30s, is that the people who matter with the power are at the center of decision-making and can be held to account. So the loss you have in terms of having the people at the center with power is the loss of democratic accountability for the UN system as a whole. But the, but the fundamental problem is that does need a rebalancing. In the post-Cold War environment, those political dynamics on the Security Council are profoundly different in real terms than they were in 1946-47. So having, for example, two European members of the Security Council, there's no logic to that. Post-Brexit, you know, there, there, there's, less, there's less chance of doing anything about it, but there's no logic to it. Not having India there, not having Japan there, those, not having Brazil there, those are the kinds of power realities that the UN has to address if it is, in fact, to make a balance or strike a balance between what is practically possible and what is democratically accountable. And is there any, pra- any sign that that process is underway? Little or none. Thank you very much, Ben. 
Thanks to Ruin McCormick, Isabel Gorst and Ben Tonra, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 